Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. It seems that we just went through some campaigns for public office. We had a a huge election in our country, both uh, locally, statewide, and national. Does anybody remember that? Last week. And in all campaigns, as voters, we are, we are literally barraged, aren't we? We're barraged by the claims of all the candidates attempting to convince, convince us that they're the most qualified. And sometimes the campaign rhetoric can be brutal. And unfortunately, the winner isn't always the most qualified person. The advantage often goes to the one with the best media image and the most money. But the scene, I think you'll agree with me, should be very different in the church, in the fellowship of believers, when we are selecting church leaders. Politicking, boasting, power games, popularity contests have no place in the church. What counts is personal character and spiritual maturity. Those are the issues that we want to take into account. These are the key issues for the selection of our leaders. Now, given that, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus are known as pastoral epistles. In other words, the Apostle Paul is writing to these two pastors, Timothy and Titus, to instruct them on how to have church. Churches, these churches have just been planted in Ephesus and in Crete, and now Paul writes to them to instruct them, this is how you have church. And amongst that is how to, how to identify and how to uh, select and appoint uh, elders and shepherds in that body to help. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. What kind of task is it? It's a noble task. So we want, to, we want to be praying for, encouraging all of our leaders, our pastoral staff, our elders, uh, our church councilmen, our shepherds, all who are leading and shepherding and caring for people. This is a noble task in the mind and the eyes of God. And we want to continue to have that visibility and be praying for them. He says, now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And then there's a parenthetical statement. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now turn over with me to Titus chapter 1, just a few pages further on. And Paul writes to Titus, and he gives him much the same instructions in how to recognize 
those who would be appointed as leaders. Verse 5, he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given too much wine, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. So given those two texts, I want to walk you through. If you look at your notes, I've, I've um, highlighted or uh, encapsulated each of those into six general categories. And again, as we work through these, just reflect on your own life, because I've also given you a scale that you can judge yourself by, okay? And you can determine where you are in this process. First of all, the first category is a good reputation. There's an old saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And certainly that's true when applied to the reputation of people who lead in the church. A man or a woman may have great talents, extensive knowledge of the Bible, but if that life has a weak link, then that person's reputation will suffer and the ministry will be diminished. This is why this first group of qualifications is so vital to leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we read this. He must be above reproach, literally blameless. This is an all-inclusive quality, and it relates to all areas of a person's life. This person must be found blameless in the sight of the people in which he is ministering to. Does that mean he's perfect? No. But are there any verifiable, unresolved charges of wrongdoing that can be brought against this person? That's the key. Verifiable, unresolved charges of wrongdoing. In verse 7, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. That's with non-believers, non-Christians. Why is this so important? Well, because the testimony, not only of the, it's not only the testimony of the leader, but also of the church, and it's ultimately the testimony of Christ. We've all had visibility of, of Christian leaders who've fallen. Uh, this whole debacle in the Catholic Church, tragic, is a testimony ultimately on Christianity and the cause of Christ. So it starts with us individually, and it starts with individual leaders, that we be people who have a good reputation especially with outsiders. Paul says that if he doesn't have this good reputation with outsiders, he will not only be disgraced, but he will fall into the devil's trap. Why? Satan is always working since the very beginning. If you just go way back to the garden, he's always working to discredit God's people, and especially now in the New Testament age, Christian leaders, and ultimately, as I said, the church's witness. So it's 
This is really important, really, really important. In verse 2, this person is to be respectable. That word comes from the Greek word for an orderly or well-arranged life. A man who lives an orderly life is conducting himself in an honorable manner. That life literally commands the respect of the people around him as they watch him and they see him. He is respectable. You don't even have to say it. He just is. So this kind of person doesn't run from crisis to crisis to crisis because of his own disorganization. The second category is self-control. There are lots and lots of people who have lost control of their lives over something. The controlling factor may be food. It may be sex, alcohol, drugs. might be TV. It might be an emphasis on power or work or maybe even an all-consuming hobby. But they've just simply lost control of their life. And in each case, the person is controlled instead of being in control. Do you understand the difference? Very important. The church leader should exhibit self-control. Now, what does that mean, to be self-controlled? Well, verse 2, Paul says he must live a disciplined life. A disciplined life growing in Christ-likeness. As you grow in Christ-likeness, if you become more and more like Jesus, should then you also be in control of your passions and appetites? Yeah, was Jesus in control of his passions and appetites? Absolutely. And the whole, whole point of what God is doing in our life is to continue to work in us to make us like who? Jesus. So that's the aspiration goal of our life. And as we are, we find that we are in control. We're not being controlled. And remember, this is not simply... Uh, an issue of self-effort. You know, say, oh, I'm going to control myself. I'm going to control myself. And sometimes we think that's what it is. But self-control, remember, is an aspect of what? The fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the work of God in you. It's very, in, in simply working in concert with the Lord, walking by faith, uh, you living for God instead of yourself. You see God bearing fruit in your life for His glory and for the benefit of the church. This person is not in bondage to sinful impulses. I recall what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, I will not be mastered by anything. That's a worthy goal, isn't it? That's a good life goal. The following characteristics are a good indicator of a person's degree of self-control. Verse 3, not given too much wine or any substance. The Greek word means not to be attached to or addicted to. This kind of person who overindulges would not be a worthy example. I don't want people coming to the council meeting drunk or high. <laughs> Loopy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Verse 3, not quarrelsome. A spiritual leader should not be a person commonly given to arguing or disputing or controversies or rivalries. A mature person does not involve him or herself in those kinds of things. A mature person knows 
where and when to compromise. A mature person knows the difference between a core issue and a peripheral issue. I can give ground on a peripheral issue. I can, I can compromise. On a core issue, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to die on that hill. Example of a core issue is the deity of Christ. He's God in the flesh. I'm not going to give ground on that. But on a peripheral issue like tongues or some uh, eschatological category, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, I'm not going to die on that, on that hill. Do you understand the difference? So a mature Christian is going to know the difference between a core issue and a peripheral issue and going to know when uh, they don't have to take a hard and fast stand. Am I making sense here? The third category, godly values. I think all of us would be pretty well devastated if we'd lost our house in a fire like the people up north are. How would you feel if someone stole your identity and racked up a whole bunch of charges and you didn't have life lock? How would you react if your life savings were stolen by uh, an investment counselor who you trusted implicitly and you found out that they stole all your money? Does your occupation or your work consume all your thoughts and all your energies? Do you take time to pray and read the Bible? What does your checkbook in your credit card statement say about your values? I submit to you, church leaders are to show what God values by what they value. It's a matter of priorities. It's simply a matter of priorities. And so under this category, under this heading, verse 3 says, this person should not be a lover of money. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. God has given it to us. It's a means of exchange. The problem is when we what? When we love it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so our priorities must not be centered on the accumulation of wealth. If God chooses to bless you and make you wealthy, wonderful. Praise God. I'll rejoice with you. But what should you be doing with that he's entrusted to you? Sharing it, giving it away. Remember, we are stewards. I talked to a man not too long ago in our church who, who's gone through this horrific, horrific divorce. And he had, was, was worth a lot, a lot of money. And he was saying, that was my money. She doesn't get any of it. And so I'm letting him yell and scream and kvetch. And finally I said to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whose money really is it? He said, nah, that's God's. I said, so it's not your money. It's God's money. I said, give her what she wants. Just give it to her. Is God able to replace it? Yeah. And he came to me not too long ago, and he said, you're not going to believe this. I said, I'll believe almost anything. <laughs> he said, remember when you told me to just go ahead and give her that money? And it was several million dollars. And he said, I did it. And God has replaced it plus. See, if God chooses to bless you, don't hold on to it tightly. It's not yours. It's a trust 
to be administered. It's his. And you want to prove worthy with that trust. Amen? Amen. So this person must be a good illustration of one who, though he may be wealthy, places his greatest priority on laying up treasures where? In heaven. No one should be able to accuse a leader in the church of using uh, that, that position for personal financial gain. And in all the financial dealings of this person, whether they're personal or business, they cannot be one who uses unethical or questionable tactics to make money. Brings me to category number four, a loving heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul extols the supremacy that love should have as a characteristic of our lives. As Christians, what should mark our life more than anything else? Love. Love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he gives us this beautiful, marvelous passage and really tells us what love is all about. So when, when you say to somebody, I love you, remember these verses. <laughs> Okay, your love must be, give, be given evidence of these verses. He says, now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a sounding, resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If you give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Isn't that beautiful? Now you could, you could reread that passage and you can substitute the name of Jesus for the word love. Because God is love and Jesus is God in the flesh. And so there's an apt description of who he is. But then you read through a third time and insert your name in there. Right, Jimmy? In fact, I encourage you later on today, do that. Read 1 Corinthians 13 and insert your name every place where you see love or reference to love. And let God speak to your life about that. So 1 Corinthians 13, love should mark our lives. And Paul included several requirements that are indicative of special leader's love for others. It's not enough for a leader simply to know the Bible. It's not enough for the leader to be an effective teacher or to give generously or to even profess great faith. Without love, he says, it adds up to nada, nothing, zero, nil, nine, nicked. <laughs> so how does the spiritual leader express love? He tells us. Again, from verse 3, he must be gentle. That's a very broad term. It includes the ideas of being gracious, kind, patient, 
considerate, generous, pleasant, and cheerful. If a man is short-tempered, inconsiderate, rude, or cruel, he would not be qualified. Verse 3 again, not violent. Literally, the word means not a striker. Leaders cannot resort to displays of temper or intimidation in order to control others. Nor should a leader walk around with a chip on his shoulder looking for someone to knock it off. He doesn't seek to settle his differences of opinion with violent words or actions. We don't want fistfights in the council meeting. We do sometimes have vigorous discussions, and that's good, but we don't want strikers in the meeting. In verse 2, hospitable. The term literally means loving strangers. In New Testament times, this quality referred to the action of befriending and giving lodging to fellow believers who were traveling or fleeing persecution for their faith. In the broader sense, to be hospitable refers to a, a friendliness or a willingness to help others who need assistance. The fifth category, a healthy home. Would you hire an auto mechanic who drives a sputtering, smoking pile of rusting junk to take care of your car? Probably not. Would you ask a dentist with decayed teeth to instruct you how to keep your teeth in good condition? Probably not. Would you want a person who has been in five auto accidents in the last year to give your teenager some driving tips? Probably not. The point is, we expect the person with whom we entrust our possessions, our lives, to have some proven capability and expertise. True? We want to make sure that they know what they're talking about. So church leaders must practice what they preach and be good examples to those that they're leading and to those that they're serving. And a person's home life is the most revealing aspect of his character and his leadership ability. What goes on in the home? I promise you, I can tell you just by looking at a wife and kids what's going on in that home. Believe me, it's not rocket science. Paul says in verse 2 that this person must be a husband of but one wife. That doesn't mean that he has to be married. It doesn't mean that he couldn't have been legitimately divorced and remarried. It means very simply that he's a one-woman kind of man. Faithful to his wife if he's married. Not a womanizer and not flirtatious. In verse 4, he must manage his own family well. In that parenthetical statement of verse 5, Paul makes this observation that if he can't manage his own family well, how can he take care of the church? It should be obvious to us. His children should be properly trained, and he must have a good relationship with his wife. Doesn't mean the guy's perfect but he does a really good job of managing his own household. In verse 4, his children are obedient and respectful. The kids are to show evidence that their father is a respected leader in the home 
and that he knows how to instruct and how to discipline his children. No father has perfect children, so we shouldn't expect perfection from the children of leaders. But as Titus 1.6 tells us, they should behave in such a way that no one can accuse them of being wild or insubordinate. And the final category, a mature faith. If you want to learn how to fly an airplane, what kind of teacher would you prefer? A nine-year-old who builds model airplanes or a licensed and tested flight instructor with thousands of hours of flight time? I think it's obvious. We want our spiritual leaders to have a proven and steady faith, a faith that is experienced and mature. Amen to that? In verse 6, he should not be a recent convert because a new believer has not earned a good reputation as a Christian. And if quickly elevated to a position of spiritual authority and spiritual leadership, that person would be in danger of becoming proud and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Proverbs 16:18 warns us, pride goes before destruction. And in Proverbs 29:23, a man's pride brings him what? low. So we want to be aware of that. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.